Investors Chronicle. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the IT interviews. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on the Investors Chronicle. And joining me today is Rosemary Banyard. Rosemary is a highly experienced investor in the UK small and mid-cap space. Earlier in her career, she spent some time as an investment analyst before joining Schroeder's in the late 1990s, where she developed a strong reputation for her work on small and mid-cap funds. More recently, she'd have a stint at Sanford Dayland, the firm perhaps best known for its Buffetology Fund. And in 2020, she joined Downing to launch its Unique Opportunities Fund, focusing on companies with intangible assets, cost advantages versus their peers, and other deep competitive moats that should give them superior returns. So, Rosemary, thanks for joining me. Uh, How are you doing? Fine. Thank you very much. So, a very, I mean, this always seems like a slightly cursed word, but a very, I suppose, topical moment for a fund like yours. It's been... um, I suppose a fairly tough year or so for kind of UK small and mid caps. Um, the UK also has kind of run into, I suppose, slightly wavering, not always the kind of strongest sentiments. But, you know, we can all, we can be more upbeat, we can be more contrarian and I suppose look at kind of what the opportunities are there, what, you know, people can capitalise on. But I guess to start off, it would just be interesting to touch on how you're kind of viewing the portfolio, how you're viewing the market in the light of... I suppose the new regime, some might call it, you know, we have higher interest rates, we have kind of new challenges facing fund managers compared with what we might have seen a few years ago. Yeah, so I feel that the many challenges that um, we face, particularly when I think back to the time since I launched this fund in March 2020, right at the height of the first COVID outbreak, uh, that the many challenges since then really arise from two main things. One is geopolitical events. And, you know, we immediately think about the invasion of Ukraine, uh, which has got uh, uh, knock-on effects on energy prices and food prices um, uh, and on military suppliers uh, uh, and perhaps many other things, but also geopolitical knock-ons perhaps in Africa Uh, and then of course we've got the potential threat of China and Taiwan so that's one whole category Um, and the and the other of course is Covid and the knock-on effects of that have been somewhat of a different set of things so initially obviously lockdowns enormous difficulties getting hold of stuff supply chain issues logistics issues many but not all of which have slowly resolved but then also the great resignation and ongoing labor shortages around the world um, and knock-on effects of inflation wage inflation particularly and that's that's one whole other set of challenges so in the face of all of that actually my strategy is totally unchanged (laughs) (laughs) Um, so as as you said you know I'm looking to invest in companies with identifiable moats, things that keep out the competition, and companies that have superior returns on equity, superior margins, um, really good positions, and in the main, companies um, without much debt, if any. Those um, in the main 
have have weathered this time well not not without issues but you know pretty well so um i've got just over 30 holdings and actually only two of them ever needed to raise any money at all both of them were very small placings so you know there doesn't seem to have been a great reason to change tack and as as we enter this i think permanently higher interest rate environment you know back to the kind of rates that i've been used to for a lot of my working life there are still severe adjustments going on i think out there but it does feel um better to be still in companies with strong strong market positions and uh, strong balance sheets because in this environment the strong get stronger and the weak tend to you know get weaker Mm. I suppose what examples could you give me of kind of any particular companies you see have been kind of benefiting from these challenging times? And I guess something we can move on to is, I suppose, sectors and areas where there might be, it might be kind of worth investors kind of doing some of their research. Um, there must be some opportunities thrown up by, I suppose, the kind of the, the various states <laughs> of uh, turmoil and uncertainty that you outlined. Yeah, before. that's quite a lot, aren't there? Um so th- I suppose one company that comes to mind and you know, it's, it's fairly topical um, would be Darnell, which um, you know, I'm sure most people know, the leading homewares retailer in the UK, uh, which has just put out full year results. And I suppose, although it, it, it's probably only in a part of the market that they service, the fact that, you know, Wilco has gone into administration and many of their stores will shut won't do Donnell many harm you know in certain areas of its business where perhaps it's um, seeking to attract customers looking for you know value deep value product Mm. that would be one that immediately came to mind where Donnell is still gaining market share even though it has over 10% of the homewares market is still, that, that share is still going up. And of course, as you know, department stores have been closing and dare one say it, even John Lewis has been shutting a few stores, you know, they've been benefiting on, on all of these fronts. So that, you know, that would be a, a pretty clear example of the strong, getting stronger. Are there generally, uh, I mean, this is perhaps quite a broad point, but are there any particular things in times like these that are quite difficult that you would expect to see from management teams? I mean, I guess in the case of Dunelm, it seems that Dunelm has at least been pretty, I suppose, proactive, for example, accelerating its new store openings and so on. So that perhaps that's an encouraging, you know, element of behaviour. But are there other things you would kind of look for from, from the teams at the helms of the, these companies? Yeah, yeah. So as you say, they they don't open many stores a year, mm. but they've they have announced recently that they see a, a clear opportunity to to open a, f- a few more um, in the next two years than they have been have been doing. I'd say generally, for the for the companies that are strong, and have good returns on capital, uh, on the whole, one wants them to continue investing in these times, and you know, get it getting into. Uh, you know, a, a stronger position, and and that might be um, just continuing to expand whatever their product or or, or service is. What well, one of the challenges at the moment is that there there clearly have been businesses that have benefited significantly during COVID and lockdowns, etc. And and some of that, if you call it exceptional 
demand has now sort of fallen away and some of them you know now seem clearly to have had exceptional trading which hasn't continued mm. you know one might for example one thinks about computer games uh, sector where you know every, everyone was at home and they were all get you know playing games uh and then now now they're not but there's a huge supply of games because a lot of the people that design games uh, you know kept on producing so you've got this sort of double whammy so that's that's an area of challenge uh, so there are areas like that which are you know uh, you know are seen now to be um more, more difficult but interestingly a company like games workshop uh, which is one of my big holdings um seems to be going from strength to strength so they have recently announced very strong trading now people will probably know games workshop producing you know fantasy warriors and and it's it's, it's largely still a, a, a physical activity but they have been very much over the last five years seeking to monetize their very considerable intellectual property with with considerable success so royalties are now an increasing element in their their revenues but the, but the core business continues to grow and games workshop makes um i think something over 50 percent return on equity which is very high it has no debt mm. so we you know i'd want them to keep investing at that at those rates you know what why, why wouldn't you and games workshop is is a very interesting one always very popular amongst our readers i guess because performance has been so strong over the years but i suppose that performance tends to lead to a, a valuation that perhaps some would view as a little bit rich, at least in the context of, of the broader market. Yeah. I suppose when you're backing these kind of winners and those valuation questions come up, what kind of metrics do you look at or, you know, what do you assess when you're trying to decide whether it is worth kind of paying that perhaps higher price? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really good question. So, um I think a lot of people look at the the wider market and uh, you know you say and say well that looks expensive but I would say they should look at valuations in the context of the returns on capital the returns on equity that that a company's making because you know over time if you can earn superior returns and keep reinvesting at those returns you will pull away absolutely pull away if you think about a graph and you, you you know you 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 have a low return on capital business and it you know is, it might be growing and going up from left to right but if you've got a higher uh, return business it will be pulling away with a much deeper line you envisage that and so you've you've got to look at these businesses in relation to that dynamic rather than against the market mm, mm. so so to to give you numbers on that i mean Broadly speaking, the UK stock market achieves a return on equity of between 12 and 14 percent after tax, um, depending on whether you're looking at mid-year or the end of year. There's a roughly that range. You know, the average return on equity in, in this fund is over 30 percent. So these, these businesses are more than twice as profitable in their use of the capital that they have. Now, why is that important? Well, it's quite important when you've got higher inflation, because if you've got a lot of capital, whether that's um, a factory or um, people or dock or, um, you know, debtors, you've got, you owe, you're owing people money. If you've got that all inflating up because 
prices of goods are going up or because, yes, the price of replacing your factory or whatever is going up, then if you've got a low return on capital, you're, you're going to be using all, effectively all your profit to, to just stand still in that environment. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a very high return, you can afford to sort of keep growing you know, in real terms. And I, I think because we've had a low interest rate environment and a low inflation environment for a long time, people have kind of forgotten about, uh, if you want to call it inflation accounting, and what happens when you've got high inflation is it's, it's quite a struggle to keep just to stand still. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's kind of a, a new way of thinking, isn't it? I suppose it's interesting. There are many, many investors, and many people interested in kind of stock picking and so on that perhaps we haven't really seen this kind of world of mm. um, high or, or non-zero interest rates. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mean, so that's inflation, but interest rates as well, as you say. And mm. there's there's clearly big effects from, from, from higher rates, which we are seeing and which are coming out, you know, as we speak daily. Um, so some are obvious. I mean, obviously the government's got a lot of debt, so they're having to pay a lot more for that. I mean, the, mm. uh, the, the country's interest bill is clarifying. You've got private equity who've had fantastic time for 10 years, suddenly facing a lot higher costs. And you know, I suspect we haven't seen the last of that particular trend. And then you've got some, you know, uh, just businesses which have thought they could uh, cope with, you know, higher debt and suddenly their interest costs are really painful and, um, you know, they're going to, in some cases, have to come come to the market or, you know, to, if, if they're listed to raise more capital from shareholders. I do see it, the, the, the higher interest rates, there, is, there are pushes and pulls throughout the chain. So a company I own, which has, has been... Um, more of a struggle is called Strix and they make you know, kettle controls uh, and they are the world leader but they have had quite a bit of debt and and uh, they've just had results with you know interest charges um, a lot higher um, than before and one of the comments uh, they've made is that whereas they might have had say eight weeks of visibility on shipping the controls to the, the kettle manufacturers they're now finding that the orders are smaller and more frequent so that's because their customers are trying to manage their cash flow better and so you're going to have all these pushes and pulls in the in in supply chain some of which we're more aware of or less i'm glad that i only have seven out of 31 holdings in my fund with any debt at all and, and only three with anything approaching meaningful debt and uh, you know, I'd probably mm. say I wish I didn't have any with any debt it's <laughs> it is quite tough out there and I suppose kind of bearing that that broad context in mind I mean I, I think about for example you allude to the kind of cost of living challenges people are facing and that kind of thing does does the current context have any other bearing on where you would steer the portfolio for example would you at this point perhaps be a bit more wary of Kind of consumer exposure that kind of thing well i wouldn't say that i have a lot of consumer exposure at the best of times so i i mentioned dunnell and the games workshop but they're probably exceptions rather than the rule and this is mainly because a lot of consumer facing businesses say retailers or um, restaurants are quite hard to define enduring barriers to entry it's 
just too easy for someone else to set up in competition. And so, you know, as you said, a lot of the businesses I prefer have got maybe intellectual property, uh, patent protection, or they've got um, high switching costs. So, if, you know, a lot of software companies, um, people, if, you, if you're using a particular sort of software in your business, it's it's very difficult to switch to something else because it's embedded in everything you do. So I, I prefer anyway, the kind of businesses which have clear stickiness of customers. And, and I'm not sure that a lot of consumer businesses can can demonstrate that actually there's a lot of you know there's fashion involved in a lot of it or hmm. yeah and are there any other kind of broad sectors or areas you perhaps be wary of kind of in this kind of context so there are there are sectors that i personally don't in, invest in at all one is the sort of banking sector and that's because banks make quite thin profit margins, but they, you know, magnify that up by having not not much share capital and, you know, lots of effectively lots of debt, and um, it's 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 just quite risky. And also, I'm I'm a, I'm quite wary of sectors where um, government can intervene you know without warning at the drop of that sort of thing you know think think um you know windfall taxes and things like that you know i'm wary of of areas like that Uh, another one similar vein would be um uh you know oil and gas production where um or even even mining actually where i I leave it to other people because i I can't personally predict the price of the minerals from from year to year so I'd, Mm. I'd, i'd rather go for something where I think it's easier to see a clear trajectory to ongoing, you know, progress and healthcare or whatever. Yeah. Um, turning to, I suppose, a completely different development, but one that can perhaps come out of the bloom and certainly is can have a significant effect on kind of, you know, small and mid-cap funds. Yeah. You kind of mentioned before recording there have been some sort of bid offers in the fund. Um, mm. That's, I suppose that's, a very, you know, it's been quite a big theme for kind of UK funds in in recent years. What kind of effect does it have, and what's your view on it? Because you know, I, I know some fund managers, um, including I suppose some of your former colleagues on the the buffetology world, who really despised kind of those bid offers, whereas some people kind of appreciate the uplift. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's your kind of take on it? Yeah. So it's a again, it's a good question. I mean. Um, I think it does depend. So, for example, this year uh, in the fund, we've had a bid for a company called Emis. Although listeners may or may not know Emis, they actually provide uh, software to about half of GP surgeries in the country. So, you know, whether you know it or not, you've probably, you know, there's a 50, uh, 50% chance your patient records are on the Emis system. They also provide a lot of software for pharmacies, both community pharmacies and hospital pharmacies. So it's highly likely that people have encountered it perhaps without realising. And EMIS have been bid for by uh, a big, really big American company called United Health. Um, And one thing that's interesting about that is that the chief executive of United Health is a guy called Andrew Whitty, who used to run Glaxo famous British pharmaceutical company. So I think he knows exactly what he's buying. Mm. And I feel I have very mixed feelings about it. I mean, they are, United Health are paying, 
I think it's nearly a 50% premium to the price before they came along, which is, which is pretty good. Uh, but then again, there are no no other ways to invest in this area. That, you know, there's one other private company that produces this kind of software. But uh, and so we, you know, we we lose, uh, you know, probably forever the ability to invest in that part of the market. Well, why why is that important? Well, it's it's not especially the GP software as such because you know it, it it's perhaps growing at two percent per annum there's perhaps a bit of price increase occasionally it's it's steady but it's it's not, it's not wildly exciting but of course they've got an awful lot of data on patients and uh, treatments and outcomes and you know the and, and this is unnamed patient data I hasten to add uh, you know the, the the named patient data is is within the control of the GP um, but emis have got unnamed group data and and that data is intentionally incredibly powerful for, for example, drug companies trying to develop new treatments. And so, we, you know, we're losing that, uh, the ability to invest in that for the future. So I have very mixed feelings about it, but it, but it does depend. I mean, there's a, another company that has had a couple of bids a year or two back called, called Elementis, a chemical company. And that's an interesting situation at the moment, which, almost might be said to be in play because um, their largest shareholder has, uh, with about 10% of the shares, has written an open letter basically challenging the board and saying that the record hasn't been uh, on acquisitions has been poor and that they think they need to be part of a larger group. And I suspect many people will agree with that. And in that situation, if that's right, that the, the business can't really develop and it probably does need to be part of a bigger chemical group, then it, then it may well be the best outcome that somebody does come along and pay a premium and that, um, you know, everybody leaves the party with a balloon. <laughs> and it's interesting, Elementis did have quite a big bump, didn't it, on that, um, on that news in terms of valuation? It did, yeah, yeah quite recently, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess kind of sticking with the kind of M&A theme, obviously some of your holdings will be involved in their own kind of M&A, and perhaps particularly so in times like these when valuations look depressed to an extent. And you do hold Diploma, which is more of a kind of acquisitive name. Mm. Um, what do you tend to look for if you're kind of trying to assess whether these are kind of value-adding acquisitions or not? Because, of course, many fund managers will end up selling out of companies simply because they think they're doing, you know, overly expensive acquisitions yeah. or ones that aren't particularly perhaps in line with what that company specialises in and so on. Yeah, so, and I, I would be in that number actually of having of selling out of companies that uh, suddenly become a lot more acquisitive or fairly clearly go and buy a, a business which is expensive or outside their core competence. So, for example, in the past, with this fund, I sold out of Avon Protection uh, when they decided to move from gas masks to body armor, which turned out to be quite a big mistake. But there are occasionally companies, and Diploma is one of them, which have a very disciplined approach to acquisitions and a well-honed um, strategy and, and, and do it regularly. And, and, and I would uh, say that such companies 
typically are doing infill acquisitions regularly rather than the, the word that makes me shudder is a, a strategic acquisition you know if you, if you see that phrase it's like take a deep breath and look hard so diploma is a value-added distributor of steels used in um, construction equipment it's a distributor of um, wiring and um, controls for things like aircraft and um, in the food and beverage sector and more recently in uh, the automation sector and they also distribute into the life sciences sector they distribute surgical equipment and diagnostic test kits and things like that so quite a it's quite a almost almost one would say conglomerate um, except it's got three clear three clear divisions so why would I not be worried about diploma and why what am I looking at so I look at as I said return on equity and return on capital employed and if uh, that is steady and not deteriorating too much that will tell you over time that a company is not overpaying um, for acquisitions it's 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 buying sensibly and it's managing to Im maybe improve the businesses it's bought take out some costs develop them uh, and lift you know lift the returns back to to the corporate level so that's the true the true test and many's the time and I'm looking at a possible investment and it gets rejected because there's been a collapse in returns and almost always it's because they've made expensive acquisitions and not made a decent return so a lot of what diploma does are very small deals and so you won't almost be aware of them except if you look in the report and accounts at the end of the year you'll see there might be one bigger one slightly bigger one and then there'll be a list of say seven or ten that they've done and they'll just be names and there'll be a total that they spent and maybe a brief description of what they bought so they're they're regularly doing all these little infills but they're expanding their activities geographically or adding in sort of some product uh, into their existing system which has got warehousing and sales forces and all the rest of it um, and, and they're just very disciplined about it. I'd say one thing there is that they have in their incentive scheme for management a return on tangible capital employed as a, an underpin. So if they don't sustain their returns on capital employed, they, the management will not earn their long-term incentive payments. And that is rare. It, I wish it were more common. And I think it's quite important. So, you know, Charlie Munger, basically said, you know, but this is Warren Buffett's partner, said, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. It's so right. And um, I think I think it, it, it helps. So, uh, you know, di diploma, it's not, it, it's an underpin. It, it's sort of, the, they've got to have a minimum and it's, I think it's high teens. Um, and this, this measure for them includes goodwill. So the, the, the amount of money they've paid over and above assets of their acquisitions and it includes goodwill they've previously written off or amortized uh, so it's quite a tough it's a tough measure it's saying you paid this uh what have you made out of it so that is a, a reassurance um in the case of um diploma and so i do as well as looking at uh, the trend in return on equity and return on capital employed for businesses i also do look at the incentive schemes and and um management ownership because the other protection is if management have got reasonably big stake in the business. 
So, um, you know, in the case of Dunelm, which we talked about, the family, the Adderley family still own a big chunk of the company. So they're just there keeping a weather eye on it, you know. Across the fund, the average holding uh, by management in these businesses that I own is 10%, which is quite high because that's an average. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I think you've got protections if you've got incentives that are right or management are in there. It just helps. Interesting. And turning to one other, I suppose, kind of uh, capital allocation decision, it's, it's interesting that um, quite a few of your holdings in recent times from, I think, Games Workshop to Fort Imprint and a few others have upped their dividend. I imagine it is quite a case-by-case -case topic, really, but what is your kind of feeling there, given your, you know, so much of your focus is on the kind of return on capital employed and the I suppose ultimately the the decisions the management is making with the money it is case by case because as I said if you've got a company making really high returns uh, you would logically want them to keep investing rather than give it all away back to shareholders um, uh, I think there are um, and I don't, this is not an income fund, it's a total return fund. So I, I have companies that, that where the return comes almost entirely from the dividends and I have companies where the return comes almost entirely from capital appreciation and I actually don't mind which. So I think in terms of capital allocation, um, the, the big thing is if the company is is making good returns and can invest in the business, I still want them to do that. Actually, you find that higher return businesses generate loads of cash usually. So they often find it difficult to reinvest all of it back in the business. They, it would be better if they invested more and they actually can't find a way to do that because maybe they've got more of a an established platform. It doesn't need that much investment or they, um, you know, they just have a good market share, whatever. Um, but I'd like them to do that. But uh, Otherwise, um, the first thing is, well, if, they're, if they are issuing shares for incentives, then we like them to go and buy those shares in the market. And so they're buying them and then issuing to management. It means they're not increasing the number of shares in issue. They're actually using their cash to, to stop diet, what we call dilution. So that's a, that's a, a sort of basic um, wish that, that companies would do that. Um, and then, really, it's um, it, it, it depends. Um, the, there's a bit more of a trend at the moment to buybacks, which I think speaks to how depressed the market has been in UK small and mid caps. And um, uh, I think uh, you know that's that's fair enough if you can buy in shares when your your company's valued, you know, below what it's worth. That's a good thing to do. And then there are companies that are paying dividends and increasing them and paying special dividends um, regularly as well. I really don't mind. Um, I'm happy. I'm happy with all of those those outcomes. Mm. Yeah, I suppose it's a it's a balance and yeah. um, case by case, as mentioned. It is. Okay, well, very very interesting stuff. But I'm afraid that is all. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. We have time for, so I just say thanks to Rosemary for joining us today. And thank you to everyone for listening. Take care. Yeah.